huge warm welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event this evening with an incredible duo, Robin Wall, Kimara and Lucy Jones. And we are here to discuss a very unusual and splendid subject, the history of mosses. And to celebrate this extraordinary book, Gathering Moss, a natural and cultural history of mosses by Robin Wall Kimmerer, an extraordinary and jaw-dropping account originally written 18 years ago and reissued this year by Penguin in the UK, um, more relevant perhaps now than ever. And Robin Wall Kimmerer needs very little introduction, but um, just to say she's a mother, a scientist, a decorated professor, um, an enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi uh, nation, and author of the totemic book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. And she's joining us from America. So thank you so much for being with us, Robin. We are absolutely honored. And interviewing Robin today, we have Lucy Jones um, here in the UK, a writer and journalist who's explored our relationship with the natural world in her celebrated books, Foxes Unearthed, about her, our relationships with the fox, and Losing Eden, which is uh, Why Our Minds Need the Wild, which is available from Newham Bookshop. And Newham Bookshop will be very happy to help you with both of these books. And, um, and Vivian is always available. Um, so thank you so much. Put your questions in the Q&A box. And Lucy's gonna try to come to as many as she can towards the end of this session. Tweet us, let us know what you think and enjoy this very, very special occasion as we bring together these two extraordinary authors. Over to you, Lucy, and welcome. Thank you very much, Daisy. And hi, Robin. Um, Hello, Lucy. Wow, what an absolute honor it is to be talking to you. Um, your work means so much to me personally. And this book, Gathering Moss, um, just as with braiding sweetgrass, I've read it about kind of four or five times. And every time I read it, it I get so many different things from it. It's like a living, it's like a, a living being in itself. Um, and you give us so much through this book. You are um, a microscope, you kind of show us new worlds and, you are a translator of the living world and the complexity and the beauty. Um, I feel that you you are a shapeshifter as well. You you can turn um, moss into living rainforests, um, and you are also a challenger in this book too. Um, I uh, I would like to start by asking you um, for anyone coming to mosses afresh, could you tell us a little bit about their lives um, on Earth? When did they evolve? Um, what are their defining features? Uh, how many species are there? Um, if you could tell us a little bit about them, um, just to kick off, that would be wonderful. Mm, thank you, Lucy, I'd love to. And I also want to echo, it's such an honor to be talking with you as well. And I know we have such a, a kinship in the notion of paying attention to the transcendent ordinary. And there's a way in which mosses are exactly that, you know, they're everywhere around us so often overlooked. And while today they may be the minor, as people might say, component of the ecology, when they began, they were the only plants on earth. Mosses were the first green beings to come out on to the land at a time when, you know, the land was being bombarded by solar energy. There was no soil. It was only bare rock. I think of the, the courage of these beings to set 
leaf to land, <laughs> as, as it were. And there's some debate about the exact time at which they colonized the land, but between 350 million and 400 million years ago. And mosses in the fossil record, you know what, if you look at them, they are so like they are today. Um, they haven't changed very much. And oftentimes people characterize mosses more by what they don't have than what they do, but they have little exquisite architecture of leaves and stems. They don't have any roots, but they have little hair-like rhizoids that let them attach to that bare rock, an important colonizing step. They don't make flowers or seeds, but they make, um, they have egg and sperm. They do sexual reproduction in such creative ways. And, um, and then they have a little sporophyte that with a capsule on the end that perhaps you've seen or run your hand over um, to make them release their spores into the breeze. And those are the seed equivalents. They are the dispersing part of, of, of the mosses and disperse they do on the wind to every single habitat on the planet, save the marine environment, has mosses. They're everywhere. Um, again, you know, with taxonomists, there's a debate about how many there are, but let's in let's let's throw out the number between 15,000 and 20,000 different kinds of mosses. So I do have to say that I get um, a little concerned when people say, oh, there's there's moss on that rock. You know, it would be like saying, oh, there's tree on that planet. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and what about their kind of seasons and, and a year in, in the life of, of, of mosses? Do, does each species have a kind of different um, different dynamics through the year? I know their relationship with water is very important in terms of how it affects, um, well, um, one word that I absolutely loved learning from your book is julacious, which means um, I think when, when a stem of, of, of a moss is, is filled with water in it, and it's just the most perfect word to describe that, that kind of that sense. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, the, the kind of the season of the moss and, and how, it, how it interacts with the elements and, and, and so on? Yes, mosses can be our constant companions because at least here in the temperate zone, they really don't have much seasonality. They're perennial, many of them are very long lived. And so they're always going to be green. Um, if even if they don't have moisture, they usually stay green and just wait for that moisture to return. It's certainly true that when I hear my kids or somebody say, oh dear, it's a rainy day, it's not a good day. I wanna say, oh, it's a very good day for mosses. Um, so their, their seasonality, if you will, their periodicity is much more um, attuned to rainy days and dry days than it is to the seasons of the year. But here where I live in upstate New York, where we have very long winters, um, uh, the mosses are still active under the snow. They photosynthesize at such low levels that even under a foot of snow, the, the mosses are insulated there and they, they keep photosynthesizing at a, a, a low rate, but nonetheless, they are, they're still active. Incredible. Um, you write so beautifully and vividly about um, 
the interactions between mosses and other beings. And I've wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how they interact with other beings. Um, my mind was blown uh, at learning that in a gram of moss, uh, a moss species from a forest floor, there might be many hundreds of thousands of tardigrades or water bears living, living within. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about um, what other species live within moss and, and, and the relationships um, mm. within? Mm. It, it is so amazing to think that when you hold that little moss, you're holding a forest. And just like a forest has herbivores, grazers, it has predators, it has those that live high in the canopy, those that live on the forest floor, all of that is true in the little handful of the miniature forest of, of, of mosses. Um, I'm so glad you, you named tardigrades because of course they're so charismatic, um, trundling their way like little bears through this, this, this mossy forest. There are, they can be abundant in, in many mosses, but there are also springtails and amoebas and mites of every color. Um, I love looking at the mites from the little round red ones to ones that are black and shiny like a little bowling ball um, with their eight legs walking through the, the moss forest. Um, there are insect larvae and, and you know, a host also of fungi and, and bacteria that inhabit that little moss forest. And for all of those beings, just like, you know, we would look for some birds on the forest floor, some birds in the canopy, it's the same for those little invertebrates. There are some that, that go from leaf to leaf in the top and others that are, are in the bottom. It's complex and, and beautiful. So I love that phrase that, that um, a biologist before me came up with of thinking about moss as the coral reef of the forest because it harbors so much biodiversity and we think that mosses are barely seen. Think of all the beings who live in the mosses. Awesome. And I must tell everybody that we have a guest of honour here tonight, which is um, a Leucobrium glaucum, uh, which is a pin cushion moss, um, which you might be able to see here. So, so Robin, if we want to, um, as kind of amateur biologists, see more into the world of mosses, how can we see more clearly? What would you What would you recommend? Is there Are there things that we need? Is there an attitude we need? How can we know mosses more? Mm. I'm so glad that your question includes both how could we see and that we could see with an attitude, because honestly, most mosses are just at the limits of our perception of the unaided eye. You can see mosses with great delight and wonder with the naked eye. All it takes is attention. Well, that and maybe getting down on the ground <laughs> um, or, or picking them up and, and bringing them close to you um, because, because they have no roots. If you, if you pluck them from their substrate to bring them up to look at them closely, you can just tuck them right back where you took them from and, and nestle them in and, and they'll be fine. So it's really attention. It is slowing down and paying attention that lets you see into this world. But I always want to see more. And so I usually have my loop with me, a little uh, 10X magnifying lens that lets you um, 
you know, even after decades of looking at mosses, lets you gasp with astonishment when you put your lens on. You think, are you kidding me? Right before my eyes is this world of like green stained glass. Um, so those are the things that, that are perhaps most beneficial. But, you know, because I'm, because I'm a scientist and um, I have access to microscopes, so I, ha I have at home both a stereo microscope and a dissecting microscope and a, and a compound microscope, um, both of which I, 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 I treasure. Those are wonderful tools for seeing even more fully into the microcosm of the moss world, but certainly, certainly not necessary. Thank you. And is it okay? I wanted to ask you about kind of the ethics of gathering moss and um, kind of after reading your book again, I thought um, it's okay for me to bring some moss in and look at it and then, and then put it, put it back maybe. I mean, um, is that a, an all right thing to do or um, is it better to look at the moss right there and then? Both of those are good strategies. And when I take moss from the field, I'm thinking about when I collect specimens for my ecology of mosses class, um, I, I encountered just the same question that you're, that you're asking. And I draw there on, our, on my indigenous heritage of how we take from the land. And I always ask permission of those mosses and tell them that they will come to be our honored teachers in, in the lab um, and ask their permission to come with me, to come with me to the university so that other people will love them. Um, and, but what I'm very careful to do in our lab is, is that, you know, the students might learn from one of these mosses and then sometimes they want to say, oh, well, I'm done now, I'll put it in the trash. And lesson one in our lab is no, these are these are not just specimens. These are living beings who have agreed to come teach you. And so we have a big glass bowl at the front of the lab where they bring their mosses when they're done and and we collect them all and bring them back out to the land. I think it's really important to teach those ethics and respect for these beings at the same time as 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 we're coming to know them. And um, and for the most part, my students really, are taken by that notion that they that they owe a debt of gratitude to the mosses for for in a sense their sacrifice of coming to teach them mm. and thank you for that and of course i mean people humans have had a kind of history of with mosses and um i wanted to ask you a little bit about that because um it's maybe quite quite surprising. So I asked my four-year-old today if she had any questions for you because she loves moss. And she said, um, do humans eat moss? Um, and he, I don't think they do, but they, humans, particularly women actually, or caregivers have used moss in certain ways, haven't they, in, in, our, in our history? Um, I wondered if you could talk a bit about, about the, amazing, um, the amazing ways mosses have been used in, in the care of babies and, and for women as well. Yes, yes, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. One of the things that all of us know about mosses, if we've ever sat on a, a thick mossy log or been seduced into lying on a bed of moss, is that you know you're going to get up wet <laughs> because mosses are sponges, right? Um, the way that they're constructed is 
to hold water. And so many of their uses in traditional cultures are associated with those, those absorptive qualities. And I, I appreciate especially that you um, give a nod to women's knowledge about this because um, in our moon times, um, mosses have been used um, for, for women and they have also been honored in that way. And they're also honored in caring for babies. Um, when today uh, traditional women of, of, of our nation still make what we call moss bags and they're bags that are stuffed with, with a certain kind of nice clean soft moss and we wrap the babies in them and then put them in their cradle boards. And if you think about it, the, the, they're not only absorptive, some of the mosses like the peat mosses can hold 20 times their weight in water. So they're super absorptive. But the other thing is that because the mosses are made of all these little, or that they contain all these little capillary spaces of, of air holding, they're also good insulators. Um, so it's, it's warm, it's absorptive, and many mosses have built-in antimicrobial properties. So for, for um, uh, for moon times, for baby times, and indeed for a wound dressings. Um, mosses have historically been used for all of these ways of caring for life. Um, there's many other material uses for them of, of, of insulation, of, of tucking dry mosses into the tips of your mittens or into your hat or your, the toes of your boots um, for, for warmth because once that water is gone, they're so dry and soft, like cotton almost, and, and they're, they're excellent insulators. Amazing. Um, it's incredible to watch um, mo mosses um, kind of transmogrify from, from that dry, desiccated state, and then you drip, drip water them, and, and you see them become gelaceous. Um, and filled with water and I there's a phrase that you use in gathering moss um, which are lifeboat cells I think um, to describe the enzyme I think within the mosses which stays um, dormant until the water returns um, can you explain that a little bit more how mosses seemingly look without life and then suddenly they they become kind of green and glowing and and beautiful again what what how does that work? Yeah, the truth is we don't fully understand how it works because it's so remarkable that, you know, um, there was a time when mosses were at the center of what was called the revivification controversy of whether things that were dead could come back to life because it seems that mosses do come back to life. They can stay in a dry museum cabinet for, for a long time and then you add water to them and they start to come back. Or even in the seasonality of a year, you know, in the dry summer days, they're gonna be crisp. And then when it rains again, they expand and are full and lush and julacious. Um, and part of that has to do with their abilities to sense their own drying. And when that starts to happen, they turn on a protective sort of biochemistry that they can, they sense that they're not able to hold on 
to water anymore. So they, they protect the chloroplast, they protect all of the organelles and the whole mass, the cytoplasm of the cell shrinks down to like this little particle. Um, and there it waits. It's not dead, it's just waiting. And in the early days of, of, of measuring life, if you will, we didn't have sophisticated enough equipment to know that in that dry state, the mosses were still respiring, still very slowly being alive. But what patience, what resilience to just wait until the water returns. And when it does, um, the whole process works in reverse. And depending on the moss, it can be 20 minutes before they're back to photosynthesizing. Some others may take longer, um, but, but not more than a few hours. Um, so they're very closely tied to these cycles of, of moisture. And uh, we still don't fully understand these protective mechanisms that allow it to happen. Amazing. Um, patience and resilience. Uh, that remind, it reminds me of, there's a brilliant forest ecologist, I don't know if you've come across her, called Navini Nadkani, and she's worked with um, inmates in, 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 carcer in incarceration, and um, one of, I think she, she made a record of, of um, what they said about being, connecting with, with uh, different species in the prison um, to look at their well-being, and one of them kept um, some moss in a drawer, um, and he said, the moss is like me. Um, it's it's come dead and dormant at the moment, but it will it will live again. Um, and it strikes me that there's so much we can learn from mosses. And I wanted to ask um, you, uh, what have mosses told you over the years? Mm. I love that quote from Nalini, and I'm such an admirer of her work in, sp in spreading the, the teachings of, of mosses so, so broadly. You know, I'll tell you in, in that at the beginning of the pandemic for us, I was teaching my moss class when, I, when we all got the announcement that the university was closing and everyone was to go home. It was in the middle of my moss class. And all of us were shaken of course, to think about this. And we dropped everything that we were doing. And the collectively, my students and I said, what would mosses do? What, what is the response? What are the things that we could learn from mosses that will carry us off as we leave um, our, our studies? And who knew that it would be so long? And that message of resilience is one of the things that the students brought up over and over again, is that we have to wait this out. Um, we have to be patient. We have to have trust in our own resilience. And uh, so they really echoed that. But you know what else they said? They were mindful of the fact that mosses are, the success of mosses are based on cooperation and interdependence. And that's another thing that they said they were going to take with them, that mosses are, are, are such helpers, not only of people, but of the whole forested ecosystem, um, of any ecosystem, really. And they thought, well, we will succeed by cooperation, by individual resilience, and by collective cooperation and, and interdependence. That was one of my most moving days of teaching, was to 
to connect with my students about what have you learned from losses that you can carry into this hard time. There are, I think, in a time now of, of climate peril and biodiversity loss, as we are rightly challenging and questioning many of our assumptions about the, the institutions and cultures that we have created, mosses again become really important teachers. Mosses are minimalists. They create beauty and incredible diversity by taking very little from the world. They are not about exerting their power and dominance and status. Um, they count wealth by essentially by what they give and the lives that, that they support, not by how big and dominant they are. And you know, their dominance comes in their longevity. Um, the mosses have been on the planet for 350 million years. They've been through every climate change that the earth has ever experienced, the terrestrial earth has ever experienced, and they're still here. Shouldn't we be listening to them? Shouldn't we be looking to say, well, that's what success means, is, is beautiful longevity, um, not short-term um, dominance, I guess I'd say. Thank you for sharing that. Um, wow. I wanted to talk to you a bit about mosses and their names. Um, because in, in Gathering Moss, you talk about the importance of, of naming. And I wonder, thinking about how we can, how we can learn from mosses and, and listen to mosses at this, at this time, um, this time of, of peril and destruction, uh, as you've mentioned. And um, it seems to me that, that, as you say, knowing them and knowing them more as just not this, the green wallpaper as a, a phrase that you have, have used as just moss, um, will, will forge a kinship. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the lack of common names of moss. So is that right? There aren't really any common names. Um, are there? And, and why aren't there? Why? Because I, I suppose from a kind of, um, amateur perspective you look at the mosses and there's a lot of latin names and you're it can be quite hard to know how to pronounce them and so on so do mosses have any common names should they why don't we why why don't we know their names and and, and why is that important such a great question um and for the longest times mosses were really um uh, appreciated primarily by academic botanists, um, by their names anyway. They were appreciated by everyone who encountered them without knowing their their names. Um, but there are there is a movement, in fact, for common names for mosses, and a number of scholars have have put together common names for them. Some of them have come into common use, like the pincushion moss that the Leucobrium glaucum that you brought us, Lucy. Um, there are some mosses that, that do have well-used common names. And, and I would like to see more of that because I think having a name for an organism helps us draw attention to them. If they have different names, we're confident that they are different beings. Um, it helps in the process of discernment. 
Um, but I don't really think that we need necessarily to know their, their Latin names. I happen to love their Latin names because some of them are just delightful language. Um, I mean, who doesn't want to say bryoerythrophilum recurvorostrum? Like, oh, that's just, that's Linnaean poetry, right? Um, but we can also call it the little red brick moss. And, and that is an intimate sort of name that brings us into a relationship with bryoerythrophilum. So um, common names that others have used are just fine, but you know what I tell a lot of my students with any kind of plant naming is, why don't you look at this being closely enough that you could name them? Um, and then after that, we'll talk about what is the commonly accepted name. Um, but sometimes a name can both create relationship, but it can also maybe shut down further inquiry. Um, if you say, oh, well, I know its name, as if that's all there is to know. You know that, you know, I know your name, Lucy, so that's all there is to know. Um, crazy. Um, so I think about, you know, both the reasons that Linnaeus, for the most part, began this, this practice of, of binomial nomenclature where Western science stamped a uniform name on all beings. But in our Potawatomi culture, we had a name or two. He was one of our first, he was the first man, original man, Nana Bojo. And he was given the job of the, of the names of all the other beings who were already here, established living their lives on earth. And his job was to come and name them. And But the approach he took was not to give them a name or impose a name on them. His approach was to get to know every living being so well that they told him what their names were. And I love that frame shift between naming as imposition and claiming and name, naming as relationship. And so I encourage amateur biologists to um, to listen and look closely enough that those mosses will tell you their own name. And then you'll know them so well, you can easily go look them up and, and find out what other people call them. That's wonderful. Um, I spent some time today with Hylochlomium splendens. Is that right? Lucky you, yes. Um, and I love the splendens. At the the sec I don't know, I don't remember much Latin, but splendens sound is a lovely word. And my daughter was calling it fairy kingdom, fairy kingdom moss. Um, I think at that age they have such a sense of the little things and what lives, what lives within them. Um, so we've talked about a bit about um, what what we can do to know mosses more. And I've wondered um, how, how we might give thanks to mosses or, or honor mosses. We obviously get a lot from mosses and, and humans have over history as we've, as we've talked about and, and through metaphor and, and symbolism as well, these symbols of patience and resilience and the lessons they can give us. But um, how can, how can, we as, as, as human animals engage in a kind of reciprocal relationship with mosses? How can we honor them? How can we thank them? Mm. I think we, we know how 
to thank them with our emotionally, right? When we encounter them to, to really be grateful for these delightful green lives that are around us. And then when we have that profound gratitude for those teachings, for that beauty, we naturally want to reciprocate, right? Um, and so how do we reciprocate the gifts of, of mosses? I think one of the most important things that we can do is to protect their habitats. Because one of the reasons that the biodiversity, the number of species of mosses and liverworts is so high, is that many of them have very narrow ecological niches. There are only certain places that they live. And they, some of them are quite cosmopolitan, but many are not. And so to protect and respect their sense of home and place, both to protect their habitats in all of the ways that through, you know, land trusts and parks and all, all, the, all the land conservation mechanisms that we have, but also to resist the commercial exploitation of mosses, because that too is, is, is a threat to them. Um, in many cases, people love mosses so much that they want to transplant them to, to their own yards or in some cases to their own inside gardens. Um, and with some cosmopolitan species, that might be possible, but for the most part, it's just not. You need to have an exact match between where the place that you're bringing them and the place that they that they came from. And for the most part, we, we can't do that. So I think the way of respecting mosses, in especially in our landscape, is to say if we want mosses around us, create the right conditions and the mosses will come. The, the air is full of moss spores and, and you know, every, every little vole has moss propagules stuck between their toes. They will come. Um, and so that really is our job is to create the conditions that invite them. Um, and that respects the sovereignty of those mosses to decide where they're going to live rather than this commercial exploitation that says, oh, these are beautiful. I'm going to roll up those mosses off a log, stick them in a plastic bag and sell them to anyone for any purpose. It, it, I think it's, it, it's deeply unethical and of course removes the ecological functions that those mosses were, were providing in, in their habitat. I was very struck in the in gathering moss where you call for a kind of new aesthetic where um you know in some areas moss can be seen as a symbol of kind of moral decay and there's a moss removal business you know and people see moss as something to kind of eradicate um uh and i wondered how and in england actually at the moment we've got it's quite an interesting time of maybe um uh, rethinking or reevaluating mowing schedules in in urban and rural areas where um you know the the kind of cultural um preference has often been just to kind of have mown lawns and, and remove all, remove all the habitats and and different um councils and and, and counties in, in england are starting to kind of push back on that and and um allow more life to thrive but i wondered um if i could ask you about how we can grow a new aesthetic and kind of move past this idea of um, life as in mosses or weeds 
um, you know, the kind of small species um, which uh, can be seen as, yeah, pests or, or weeds. How can we grow? How can we grow out of that? How can we evolve past that? Mm. It's such an interesting question because we humans, I think, as a society, really have this notion of human exceptionalism, right? That in anthropocentrism, that it's all about our preferences and our dominance of, of the living world. And, you know, one of the results of that is this estrangement from the living world of, of what eco-psychologists are calling species loneliness. Um, and how do we change that, that aesthetic? I think that public opinion in a way can be shifted by, by being so intentional about inviting other beings into your life. I know here in the States, for example, we have the same you know, notions about lawn and what lawn is supposed to look like, all uniform in one species and, oh, how terrible. Um, and folks who are letting their lawns grow into pollinator gardens and places for groundwater recharge and stormwater absorption, they're putting beautiful little signs in their yards that say, this is a river friendly yard. Not I'm a lazy homeowner who didn't get to mow, but this is intentional, my neighbors. Look, this you could have all of this beauty, all these pollinators in your yard. And by the way, take care of the salmon in the rivers at, at the same time. Um, I think we should have a whole movement to that of saying this is this is not an unmoon lawn, this is a pollinator garden. This roof covered with moss, oh, that's not the sign of, of neglect in a leaky roof, not, not at all. What I'm doing is cooling the planet with evaporative cooling by mosses. Mosses on your roof, green roof, actually do a lot of good. Um, in, in, in water retention, in cooling, in all the biodiversity that lives inside of those, those mosses. Um, I think other than, I, I'm not sure, Lucy, how to change that aesthetic other than demonstrating it and proudly demonstrating it um, as opposed to um, letting someone draw their judgment that you're not a, a good caretaker. In fact, you're a good caretaker of the planet um, if you let the mosses be. I have so many friends who have told me, I used to scrape moss off of this or that, but after I read Great Gathering Moss and really now I, I just look closely and, and love having them. What was I thinking to, to get rid of them? It's time to center mosses, isn't it? Um, thank you for that. I am so aware that I could ask you a million more questions and I would love to, to talk to you all night but I have to pass the mic because there are a lot of questions from the audience but before I do that um, you have very kindly agreed to read um, a section from your wonderful book um, from I think the first chapter learning to see uh, and I wondered before we move into audience questions, if you might, if you might read that for us. I'd love to. Learning to see mosses is more like listening than looking. A cursory glance will not do it. Straining to hear a faraway voice or catch a nuance in the quiet subtext of a conversation 
requires attentiveness, a filtering of all the noise to catch the music. Mosses are not elevator music. They are the intertwined threads of a Beethoven quartet. You can look at mosses the way you can listen deeply to water running over rocks. The soothing sound of a stream has many voices. The soothing green of mosses likewise. Freeman House writes of stream sounds. There is the rushing tumble of the stream running over itself, the splashing against rocks. And then with care and quiet, the individual tones can be discerned in the fugue of stream sound, the slip of water over a boulder, octaves above the deep tone of shifting gravel, the gurgle of the channel sluicing between rocks, the bell-like notes of a drop falling into a pool. So it is with looking at mosses. Slowing down and coming close, we see patterns emerge and expand out of the tangled tapestry threads. The threads are simultaneously distinct from the whole and part of the whole. Knowing the fractal geometry of an individual snowflake makes the winter landscape even more of a marvel. Knowing the mosses enriches our knowing of the world. I sense the change as I watch my bryology students learn to see the forest in a whole new way. Thank you so much, that was beautiful. Um, so I'm gonna turn to our questions. We have so many. Um, I'm going to try and get through as many as possible. Um, we have a few questions um, that have asked, how did you become interested in mosses? Um, and let me just find one similar. Um, yeah, how did you become interested in mosses? It's a little bit of an embarrassing story because I, I've always been interested in plants ever since I was the, the age of your daughters. Um, and so when I went away to college, I took every single botany class that I could, every one of them, except for the one that I thought would be most boring, which was the ecology of mosses. <laughs> I saved it quite to the, to the end of my college years, thinking, well, how interesting could that be? Um, but then, the first day of that class, the first time I put a magnifying lens to the moss, it was really just love at first sight. Um, you know, for me, I was really training at that time to be a forest ecologist. I was really interested in the principles that organize a forest and knit together all the beings of a forest. And suddenly I encountered a forest that was only this tall. And not only was it, is it aesthetically stunning, but for me, it also just opened all of these questions of, are the same principles of organization that hold a forest together, all those interactions, does that work when the forest is, is only uh, two centimeters tall? And so it was um, an awakening for me both aesthetically and that sense of just being bowled over by their beauty and also the the question of 
what's going on here? What are all of the relationships that um, I've never paid attention to before? And it never gets old. It's, a, it's that constant well of wonder. Beautiful. Um, and talking of relationships, we have a question from Holly who says, Robin, can you talk about springtails and tardigrades in the ecosystem? What even are they? And can you recommend a good brand of magnifying loop so that we can see them? Can you see them with a loop or do you need a microscope? That's a great question. Um, because they move, <laughs> it's a little bit more um, complicated. But springtails, for example, beautiful little uh, columbulin invertebrates. They're called springtails because they have a thing called a furculum. It's a little lever tucked under their, their bellies. And it, when they move, they, they spring that little lever and they, they hop around with that spring. Um, for the most part, they live in mosses because they need the moisture. Um, all those little beings need the moisture. And there's lots of things like algae and fungi for the springtails to eat inside the moss colony. The tardigrades are a, an amazing little in, invertebrate that, um, again, they're mostly grazers. They're grazing along on the leaves. Um, and um, they're harder to see without a microscope. Also because a lot of these little beings kind of hide in the crevices and the leaf folds. So they're a little harder to see um, just with a lens, very visible um, under, under a microscope. Um, for, oh, but I should say there are plenty of other beings that you can see with your hand lens, the mites in, in particular. Um, but I, I use a, a Bausch and Loam lens called the Hastings Triplet. You know, when I think of all of the things that I have lost in my many years, unknowable pocket knives and keys, I have never lost my loop. It's the same loop that I first looked at mosses with when I was 20 years old. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's a treasure. And once you have one, I think it'll be a treasure for you too. It wants to stay with you, your loop. Um, thank you. Okay, there's a few questions about um, relationship between lichens and moss. So one is, could I please ask what the difference is between moss and lichen? And are lichens related to moss? A very important question because they share a habitat, don't they? Once you start looking at mosses, you're inevitably, inevitably going to be looking at lichens. They're at the same scale and both of them have this quality of being poikilohydric, that is being able to dry up and wait and then rehydrate. So they live in very common places, shared places. But a lichen, as, as some of you may know, is, is not one being at all. It's a symbiosis between an alga and a fungus. Um, they live together as if they were one organism and assuming, depending on the fungus and the algae, they create all these amazing forms in, in lichens. Whereas mosses are plants, they are the most primitive of plants on, on earth. I don't really like that term primitive. It really makes them sound like they're lacking. And I know them as elegant, elegant, sophisticated beings, but let's just call them ancient. They're the most ancient um, of, of beings, um, but they're actually plants. They have leaves and stems and um, chlorophyll, just like the, the plants in your garden, um, but they're, they're just really tiny. 
So mosses and lichens share a habitat. They often will share ecological relations um, between them, um, but they're, they're very different biologically. Fantastic. Um, Soha has a great question. Are there any unique or surprising ways you've seen animals use moss in their habitats? You know, one of the most common and, and for me intriguing way that mosses are used by animals in their habitats is by birds. Um, I'm a, you know, I, I am a basket maker as well. And so when I look at birds nests, I look and think, how in the world did they do that? I, I couldn't make that. And when you look closely at the architecture of many bird nests, they have mosses um, that are interwoven into them. And not just any mosses, actually one of my undergraduate students did a study about this and the birds know their mosses. They're not picking up just any old moss. They're very particular about what mosses they take <coughs> excuse me, and interweave into their nests. Well, why do they do this? Because of course they're soft, they're insulating. Some of the things that we talked about for baby care also is true for baby birds. And so the, the parents use them, but a really intriguing pattern in songbird use is that those birds who are um, let's just say their hygiene is not good. <laughs> they're, they put lots of moss in their nest. There are some birds who just, the baby birds make a big mess. And those are the nests where they put lots of moss. Those birds whose parents carry the waste away don't use moss in their nests. Um, so I think that's a pretty good sign about the importance of, of the mosses for their antimicrobial properties when when baby birds are concerned that's amazing they're using mosses a bit like nappies like humans have done or diapers in the past they are. yeah um fascinating okay um so we've got a question from rapid transition alliance who says are we losing moss species and how might we protect them it's a really important question and a difficult one to answer and it gets back to our earlier discussion about naming of mosses and their relatively relative obscurity. Because mosses are so understudied, it actually is difficult to chart their decline. Um, and yet, even with the limited observational data that we have, we do see declines. Um, we see serious declines, particularly with habitat loss among rare mosses. And there are great concern about things like um, changes in the pH of environments because of acid rainfall um, and acid deposition of, of other sorts because mosses are terribly sensitive to changes in pH. Um, there are increasing number of studies that point to the, um, the climate vulnerability of, of bryophytes as well. So yes, all of these threats add up to threats to, to loss of moss biodiversity. And one of the ways that we can help combat that is something that you all in the UK already do very well. And that is, I've always been a little jealous of you all for the British Bryological Society, um, of which I understand there are many, many 
local chapters who engage amateurs in charting the biodiversity of their habitats year after year. And some of that data is some of the most valuable for charting the, the losses of species in various habitats. So if you want to help mosses, that's a, a really important element is get to know them because if we don't know them, we can't know when they're in jeopardy. Thank you. I'm gonna sign up for that society right away. Um, and, and moving on from that, we've got, a, we've got a question from Paul Beavers who says, are there species that are wholly dependent for survival on mosses for food or for breeding or other dependencies? There are, um, and most of them are in the category of these tiny little invertebrates that live nowhere else, that they only live in, in mosses. And so they are not, they are not the objects of conservation concern like uh, bison and pandas and, and dolphins, the charismatic megafauna, as we call them. I think of them as the charismatic microfauna, these, these amazing little animals that have so much to teach us um, and uh, live only in mosses. So tardigrades, these little water bears would be um, one example. And um, there are many other little wee beasts um, that depend entirely on mosses for their survival. So when we lose a moss, we, we lose all of their relatives as well. Thank you. We have so many comments um, about about you and how wonderful you and your writing are. And I won't be able to read them all. Um, I, I hope that they might be sent to you maybe afterwards. Um, we have a question from AI who says, hello, how do you cope with the day-to-day -day ecological grief of watching ecocide happen faster that we can stop it? Love you, thank you for everything. Mm. I ask myself that question a lot. In fact, I was just telling Lucy before we, we broadcast that I was, I'm just back from the woods actually teaching a course in the field for the last two weeks in a beautiful wilderness area in the Adirondack Mountains. And one of the days I went out to say good morning to the lake and I looked around and the air was so silvery and strange. And I thought, what is this? And then I realized and heard the news as well that that our skies were filled with smoke from the coastal west coast fires in North America. And it nearly brought me to my knees that I was breathing in the smoke of those lost forests. It the grief is heartbreaking. Um, but what I try to do is to feel that deeply. I we can't look away from it because to me, grief is that measure of how much we love the world. And the grief can paralyze us. It can bring us to despair and, and, and hopelessness. But when we recognize that that pain that we are feeling and that we must feel is ecological compassion, it's, it's, it's love. And then it ignites for us this love for the world that is, is, is strong and fierce and lets you say, no, not on my watch. Um, I, I think it's so important. I always ask myself and, and others, what do you love too much to lose? Commit to that. 
and know that it's our responsibility to pick that up and carry it through the narrows of, of climate change um, because that's, that's what the world will look like on the other side is from those ones who we carry safely to the other side. Thank you, Robin. Um, John Preston asks, what one action would you request that people do to stem the loss of biodiversity today? I only have to choose one. <laughs> there are so many. And I think that the one I'm going to focus on, I often think about large scale land conservation, particularly large scale land conservation led by indigenous peoples, which is being shown to be a very important piece of, of biodiversity protection. But I want to focus on something else because so many of our population today live in urban suburban settings where we may think that we have no agency at all in protection of biodiversity. But of course we do with our votes, with what we spend our money on, with what we give our attention to and what we do in our own backyards. Um, the, the notion of rewilding our gardens and our backyards, of creating biodiversity havens in urban and suburban landscapes is really important um, for pollinators, for birds, and indeed for, for mosses. So we have to support the large scale efforts, but to know that if each and every one of us rewilded our garden, our cities would be really different. Um, and they would be um, havens for, for, for biodiversity instead of deserts. Thank you, Robin. We're coming to the end and I'm so sorry to everyone who I haven't been able to answer, ask your questions of Robin. I will end with one more, just, just slip it in, um, from Alex Domet. Um, I wonder how we can feel parts of the living world that are beyond our initial perception. How can we open ourselves to worlds within worlds and support others to do the same? Are there any techniques um, you use to practice a deeper noticing? Mm -hmm. You know, Alex, one single word comes to mind, and that is simply look, just look. And in that way, all the worlds open up, as you're saying in, in, in your question. But there are so many things out there that compete for our attention, aren't there? And oftentimes those things that are competing for our attention are part of the economy of exploitation, the economy of, 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 of consumerism. And to resist that and to give our attention to the beings and the earth who really sustain us, um, looking. I call it, uh, well, actually, it's E.O. Wilson's phrase, I think, the naturalist's trance, that when you're looking deeply, um, all the rest of the noise kind of goes away and you're, and you're drawn in. It takes quiet and, and patience. You can't be in a hurry, but um, I think it, it is in that single word of just look and, 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 and that's the portal. Thank you so much, Robin. Um, thank you for your beautiful prose and the wonder and the awe 
um, that you bring us through your work um, and your soul and your love and um, your time tonight. It's been extraordinary. Um, I've learned so much from you and it, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much. Likewise, Lucy, and, and thanks to all of you for listening and for your, for your good questions. Um, I'm glad that we are together in this work of loving the world back to wholeness. Me too. Thank you, Robin. Thank you both so much for that extraordinary conversation and for your incredible storytelling, Robin, and such deep wisdom and knowledge and sharing it so generously with us. Um, we have all been listening so attentively to this incredible description of the charismatic microfauna and, um, and we hope that everyone will continue to learn more about Moss and to read this book, Gathering Moss, and indeed um, to listen to the podcast and share that once we put it up. This was an extraordinary conversation and really helping us to see the world around us in a new way. So thank you very, very much. And thank you, Lucy, for your wonderful questions. Um, I wanted to also mention that Losing Eden is also out now. So for now, that's all we've got time for. Um, but that was an extraordinary and very, very special occasion for us. And we are truly grateful to have been able to play a part in bringing you both together. But for now, good night to everyone. Thank you for your fantastic questions. And we will see you again very soon. <laughs>